HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today's program was brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick at 261 Morgan Street. Uh, sorry, God, I've been saying this for three years and I screw up the address. Amazing. 261 Moore Street. <clears throat> That's the Morgan Avenue stop, folks. Um, and brunch is being served now. Anyway, uh, today's guest is Jennifer Cockrell King. She joins me on the phone from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Jennifer is the author of Food and the City, a recent published book from Prometheus. Uh, Jennifer is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times, the National Post, the Canadian Geographic, and others. And as I say, she's coming to us live from Edmonton, Alberta. Hey, Jennifer, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining me today. So Food in the City, your new book, is a tour of urban agricultural centers in Canada, the U.S., Cuba, and Europe. Give us a little background on the history of urban gardening, because um, as it turns out, we didn't just invent it. I thought that was a fascinating right. part of the book. <laughs> no, there's a lot of enthusiasm right now about growing food in cities, which is fantastic. Um, but uh, my grandmother certainly did that, and probably, you know, for many, many years before that as well. Um, I guess the thing to remember is um, ever since we've been settling in cities, we've congregated around good uh, agricultural land. So there's been this long physical connection between cities and farming going back millennia and millennia. Um, it's only really been in the, in the age of industrial food where we've been able to distance ourselves from food production so that we can grow crops on one continent and consume them on another. Yeah, I thought... Um, Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say that I thought one of the more, you know, fun parts of the book actually in the very beginning was when you describe Louis XIV's incredible gardens uh, that were designed to feed his small city of the castle at Versailles. And it was exactly. just, I mean, it was just fascinating, like the techniques that they developed, the espalier of, of 
fruit trees, you know, growing them up against walls so that they would gain the heat from the warmth of the stones and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, we all like to think that we just figured this out, but really it has been, as you say, going on for millennia. So um, when you when you toured around to these various places to look at urban farming projects, um, who, who did you see had the most sort of popular commitment to urban farming? What city was, did you feel like was the most enthusiastic about this? Well, I found enthusiasm everywhere, which made writing the book very difficult. Because as you say, in, um, in places like Paris, where they've been growing food in the city of Paris, and in cities in, you know, Europe for since mid times, you know, perfecting these techniques of of urban agriculture where in cities they're actually warmer than the surrounding countryside and, and as soon as people figured this out they decide they figured they could grow crops uh, earlier on, um, so you could extend your season earlier in the spring and grow crops a little bit later. Um, so really the idea of growing food in cities there's just little pockets of enthusiasm everywhere. But in the UK, there's a town uh, in Yorkshire called Tormorden, um, and they have committed to become the first self-sufficient town. They're growing veg. They want to grow all their own vegetables that this town of fifteen hundred or fifteen thousand people uh, consume. So there are little, you know, places like that. But you know, closer to home, places like Detroit. Um, there are terrific groups working to build capacity in uh, urban food growing, and this is to eliminate food deserts and to increase citizens' health and actually improve neighborhoods and reduce crime and create jobs and even just to reclaim back these blighted urban spaces that we tend to get in cities. So um, I, would, I would say Detroit is, is doing some really interesting things, and they're discovering the nice thing about urban farming is that it's one single activity that cures a host of uh, different urban problems. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, because as you say, it provides jobs, it provides activity, it provides uh, community networking. Um, what else did it you think? It provides exercise. Yeah. I mean, we all go to the gym. You know, well, we don't all go to the gym, but there are a lot of us who pay, you know, a monthly subscription to go and work out on a treadmill, uh, whereas we could just go out and dig in the garden. And let me tell you, that is a, a full-body workout in itself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've had that workout, although I'm guilty as charged about the gym, I have to say. I do right. not I do not garden in the city, I, I admit. But yeah. um, it's, you know, it's it's uh, up in the Upper West Side where I live, there are relatively few community gardens now because we've had so much, um, we've had so much building. There were many, many more when I first moved into that neighborhood. Um, right. And it was a much less, uh, much lower income neighborhood in, in the 80s when I moved in. And now it's, it's full of high rises and most of the community garden plots are long, long gone. So it is. It's this, yeah, this is a this is one of the paradoxes of uh, of cities. Is when times are tough, uh, we grow a lot more food in cities. So uh, going back to you know even the the early 1900s, we had relief gardens, we had vacant lot gardening programs. Certainly in New York, there were there were thousands of vacant lot gardens, which were basically food gardens, community gardens that people could rent or just, uh, if they didn't have the dollar that it cost to rent them, they could just apply to grow food on a, a city plot that the city would administer. Hmm. And that happened during the Depression as well. And then in the Second World War, it was kind of rebranded as victory gardening. Right. Um, and 
in the U.S., uh, about 40% of the domestic vegetable production was on these home-based, small-scale, mostly urban gardens um, called victory gardens. So, uh, you know, again, we, we haven't invented urban agriculture. We've, we've just rediscovered it. But uh, it just goes to show that, you know, we used to produce a lot of food in cities. And so we're just rediscovering those. But as, as land prices go up, um, you know, vegetables are low, low on the totem pole. So... <laughs> Yeah. We tend to give up land for higher uh, return commercial investments. And, and farming and growing food is a subsistence thing by and large, so it doesn't provide a huge tax base for, for uh, city councillors. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But I think that um, one thing to be pointed out is that as land on the ground level is claimed by buildings, uh, rooftops become more and more of interest in terms of how yes. buildings are designed and so forth and the, the obvious benefits of, of greening your roof in terms of uh, maintaining temperature controls and so forth. So, um, I mean, I see that as something that's going to continue to grow and that that is the new sort of trend of urban agriculture. I mean, what you were talking about is happening at ground level and now people are mm-hmm. moving it up to the tops of buildings, which I think is a really interesting development. Um, when you were traveling around, did you find a lot of municipalities that were very much supporting these efforts or were you were they mostly sort of grassroots community-based efforts what cities were the most you know like uh, ready to give money or assistance of some sort right most um it, it was it was quite varied because every city has its own different challenges like you were mentioning in new york you've got really high um square footage land value so people are looking to rooftops um and some cities have way too much land like detroit Mm -hmm. um with no value to it so so you can grow on the ground and you can sprawl out um so different cities have different pressures on them but the the nice thing is people are always finding a way to uh, re-engineer food growing to it's very adaptable to very different situations um so a lot of the cities um, that I found in the Midwest had a lot of land, had a lot of unused space, so there was a lot of um, leeway. I, usually from the municipal government, it, the pressure comes from the grassroots groups, and, um, and there's usually a way to convince the, the the bylaw enforcers to drop the chicken, you know, the 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 inability to raise chickens or the um, bylaws against beekeeping Mm -hmm. or some cities even had bylaws against growing food in your front yard Mm -hmm. because as we rush towards modernization after the Second World War, um, growing food in your front yard was seen as very backward and very um, unprogressive. So there was a lot of there are a lot of cities in the U.S. and even in Canada where you have to fight against these funny little bylaws where you're not allowed to rip up your front lawn and plant vegetables. Um, certainly, we used to have beekeeping and urban chickens in most cities, um, but those bylaws you know, came in as people decided they didn't want roosters and, <laughs> and beekeeping operations in cities. So um, it, it was highly variable, and, but 
what I was finding that there was always enough of a grassroots push to change those bylaws. I mean, city councillors are always accountable to those who elect them, yeah. and uh, and you put enough pressure on city hall, and you do enough sit-ins, and things change. It's true. I mean, we recently had our beekeeping ban lifted. I think about two years ago, largely as a right. result of of community pressure on that. And now there are lots and lots of beehives. And actually, one of the other interesting points you raised in your book was that bees thrive in cities. Um, often more so than they have been in the country, because, of course, it is a big business to move bees around to pollinate fields. And you point out that the the food sources for bees is more varied in cities. Yeah, I was actually quite fascinated by that as well, um, because it wasn't really on my radar when I started the book uh, a number of years ago. I wasn't really thinking about urban beekeeping. I, I was more interested in, you know, the little green plants that were shooting up. Right. Um, but with uh, one in three mouthfuls in our food system um, dependent on pollinators like bees, uh, it's kind of that unseen, um, they're, they're unseen actors in our food system, and now with colony collapse disorder where uh, the commercial bees are dying off in record numbers for various reasons and it's sort of they think it's this sort of accumulation of pressure which is uh, commercial bees in the countryside tend to be overworked. They get moved around a lot to pollinate major monocrops like almond groves, you know, for one week and then a different crop, you know, in a different state another week. Right. And so they actually have a very limited diet because they're eating one single food source for that week or that month. And they're being overworked and overstressed. They have no uh, water sources generally in the countryside because we've plowed our farmland very flat because that makes it easier for tractors to work. Mm-hmm. And so anyways, in cities, bees have a really good time. They can eat from uh, a lot of different food sources from, you know, early pollinating fruit trees and trees to flower beds to all sorts to, you know, dandelions. So they have a, a good very diet, which we know in humans makes us healthier, <laughs> exactly. and uh, and they have no pet, they have no predators. There there are very few bears in in most uh, modern cities, so they don't get wiped out due to predators. And it's actually the lack of pesticides um, and insecticides in cities. So we think of cities as being kind of dirty places, you know, with pollution. Uh, but from a bee's point of view, at least they're not being bombarded with. Uh, you know, agricultural chemicals, which are devastating to them because they're specifically killed, uh, specifically designed to kill insects. Yeah, that's a fascinating little uh, offshoot of this whole, <clears throat> this whole, you know, effort to grow food in the cities and, and the differences between city and country farming. I mean, I, I thought that was really, really fascinating. Um, one of the, in your chapter on Detroit, um, yes. one of the people that you interviewed, Alethea Carr, remarks that the challenge we see in many young families is how to cook or how to cook with whole foods. So when you were researching this book, how many times did that issue come up? Because that happens to be a personal hobby horse of mine, that you can bring <laughs> yeah. all the fresh fruits and vegetables you want into a neighborhood and if people don't know how to cook it's really not worth the effort yeah it's it's sort of the unspoken uh root problem in a lot of cases is you know people who grew up in homes where there was no home cooking they can't even recognize what a whole vegetable looks like i mean imagine if you've only ever had french fries or potato chips um, you wouldn't really know what a potato looks like. Um, 
Absolutely. you wouldn't know what to do with it. You wouldn't know that you could buy a whole potato, which is kind of this sort of tubular-looking thing, and just, you know, put some butter on it, wrap it in foil, and pop it in the oven to make a baked potato. Um, it's a huge problem. Um, you know, people just don't know what to do with these these fresh whole foods so they actually feel more comfortable with the prepared packaged foods with the three-step instructions on the side how to unwrap them how to pop them in the microwave and how to eat them Um, so culinary literacy we've lost so much Uh, we don't teach cooking in schools anymore we don't cook at home anymore by and large so it's really not people's fault when they don't know how to uh, really radically change their diet to incorporate whole foods because it's something that they've never ever tasted, let alone cooked with. Um, so school school gardening programs, I'm really uh, supportive of those because if you or, or even community gardens, if you get children walking past a community garden every day, they see these little green sprouts that eventually grow food on them. They'll actually know what you know, a stalk of corn looks like in an ear of corn that, you know, um, they're not just little niblets that come in a can. <laughs> so, so, and also, the other thing I like about school gardens is kids are very nurturing. So they will water and they'll watch and they're patient. And then they pull a carrot out of the ground and they'll wipe it off and eat it. And to them, that's the best tasting thing they've ever tasted. Because if you get a give a kid a carrot and say, eat this, it's good for you, uh, they'll balk at it. But if, if they grow it themselves, they'll eat peas, they'll eat carrots, they'll eat spinach, they'll eat lettuce, things that we traditionally have to force kids to eat nowadays. Yeah, very true. Um, did you see, uh, was it, I mean, this is obviously a problem in U.S. and Canada, but uh, what about in the U.K. or in France? I mean, I feel like those cultures, especially the French, of course, yes. um, are you know much more geared towards uh, culinary literacy, which is an excellent term, by the way, Jennifer. I really like that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't think I made it up, but I'll, I'll take credit for it. I'll give you credit for it, absolutely. Um, what about, you know, those those cultures? Are they, are they facing the same problem? Or have they come up with solutions that um, that you think would be adaptable to the United States? I don't think the French teach cooking in school either. For instance, they don't. They don't teach cooking in school. But because what they, they cook do at home. is they uh, they feed their kids three course lunches at school, which you know is a mind boggling thing for <laughs> for us in North America. So kids will sit down. Uh, lunch is generally part of your school fees, and so uh, at public schools, you the kids don't go home for lunch. They generally go into a canteen, and they um, get the salad course, <laughs> and then they they get a main course and they get a little dessert course. Um, So at school they are learning balanced portions, Uh, they're learning a a variety of different foods, they're exposed to a variety of different foods and that's not to say that you know French uh, households are exposed to the same time pressures and economic pressures as we are here. Um, They just have a bit more of a cultural legacy of paying attention to food that we for some reason, have lost, but hopefully are regaining. I mean, this whole millennial, do-it-yourself, 20-year-old crowd that are getting into canning and preserving and making jams, I mean, I couldn't be happier because um, there's hope out there. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, Jennifer, stay on the line. We have to take a short break uh, for a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Jennifer Cockrell-King talking about her book, Farm and the City. 
market, we review each and every product that hits our shelves. Our cleaning products are no exception. Our EcoScale ranking system rates each household cleaner so you know what you're getting. Now, during Earth Month and any time of the year, learn more at WholeFoodsMarket.com. And we are back on Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. My guest today on the phone is Jennifer Cockrell-King. She is the author of Food and the City, a recent publication for Prometheus Books. And it talks. it's basically a tour of urban agriculture in cities around the United States, Canada, and in Europe, and also in Cuba, which I thought was interesting. Um, one of the things that, was, that really struck me in the book, Jennifer, was uh, you pointed out that we are three days or nine meals away from chaos should an urban <laughs> supply chain be interrupted. I was like, I've, I've heard that before, but it really sort of hit home. Um, do you see urban farming as ever being a big enough enterprise to actually, um, shall we say, correct that issue? Right. Well, it's a shocking statistic when we think it about is. it. I mean, the average North American shops 2.2, 2.3 times a week, which really speaks towards that three-day rule. We replenish our home kitchens uh, with food every, you know, three days. Um, supermarkets work on a very low uh, profit margin, so they need high volume and they can't carry a lot of inventory. And so they've become really, really good at restocking those shelves, you know, every night, but just in time. And with our food coming from different continents and different countries and from so far away, that if we were to interrupt those distribution lines, um, we would find that within about three days, you know, the, the shelves in our grocery stores, which always look, you know, <laughs> the same and abundant, and there seems to be this huge amount of food, would really go bare. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we we need to become a little bit more self-sufficient at home and within cities. And um, so we were talking, sorry, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but uh the question was really, what can we do in cities to make ourselves more right. self-sufficient? Yeah, and, well, just growing a little bit of food in cities like we used to do um, and, you know, allowing, allowing food production back into cities w- would go a, a long, long way. Um, you know, it, it's going to be hard for a city to be self-sufficient. Uh, we've always had those international trade lines with coffee and tea and chocolate and bananas and things that I certainly mm-hmm. don't want to live without. But we forget that we can grow, um, you know, peas and beans and other foods right in cities in North America. There's really no need to be um, growing them off in, you know, continents like Africa and China and shipping them over because uh, when that cheap oil ends, uh, we'll, have lost the, we'll have lost the knowledge of how to grow a lot of these foods. Well, I think that's a danger, but I, I'm also like, <clears throat> I, I'm wondering whether the, you know, any government, uh, certainly in the United States, any municipal government is going to um, acknowledge that statistic that you quote of being nine meals away from chaos yeah. and, and, and actually take a serious look at their supply chains. I mean, one of the things that we talk about a lot on this network, um, not just on this show, but on almost all the shows, is is distribution channels and how regionalization of the food system um, 
you know, has kind of got lost and um, in the industrialized food world and, and that it's going to take a lot of commitment and effort and money to re-regionalize. And that includes um, even in the city. Like, I mean, if, even if you had, for instance, we have Brooklyn Grange here, right? I'm sure you've heard about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And they're opening up and then another... And they're opening a new space in the Brooklyn Navy Yards. And then there is another much larger concern, um, the name of which eludes me, I think it's called Brightlets or something. Um, okay. Bright something. Um, and they are opening an even larger urban scale, or urban farm in the Brooklyn Navy Yards. And I'm, you know, I'll be curious to see how these guys get their product out into the market. I mean, I know that most of the Grange stuff goes to restaurants when they deal with it themselves. But if you're dealing with a larger quantity, a larger volume of food, you need a bigger processing facility. You need more of a, you know, way to get things out and about into the various boroughs. And yeah. I don't see, I don't see New York City <clears throat> as particularly um, on the cutting edge in terms of creating those infrastructures. And I, I wondered if you had seen anything like that in any of your other travels. Well, that's a good point. I mean, uh, you know, government generally, uh, food security goes directly against these sort of modern ideas of free trade and trade liberalization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do need to build are food hubs um, and sort of these alternative food systems so that we can, um, we can actually take this locally produced food and distribute it to neighborhoods and, and people within our community. So there, there is a lot of talk in places like Vancouver, um, in Canada and Toronto about building food hubs. And essentially, these would be um, central depots where, you, where local farmers could bring and store their produce and sell it commercially and, you know, direct to consumers. They could process it there. There would be like little local retail chains because we've really given up the ability to distribute our food to private companies like the grocery stores. And so they're going to get their food from wherever it's cheapest and mm-hmm. wherever it, uh, and the types of food that store the longest and spoil the least, which is not necessarily the healthiest food for us. So Absolutely. you're right. I think the next big phase in, um, in sort of this new food movement is to get some commercial businesses established around uh, being food depots in neighborhood food hubs, food processors, so that we can actually take this food and actually make use of it and distribute it. Because you're right, um, we can grow as much food as we want, and if we can't distribute it, uh, it, it does no good. And that's sort of the cause of famine over, you know, across in Africa, a lot of sure. the, the times is just distribution uh, problems. Yeah, it's uh, well. I mean, that leads us right into the next section of my questions here, which oh, is about excellent. the business, the business of urban agriculture, of creating for-profit urban farms, and where you know whether or not uh, this this. I mean, I'm going to call it a trend because I see it as a trend right now, whether or not that trend is viable or strong enough to attract serious venture capitalists into creating what you just described, a food hub. What do you think? Do you think this is going to happen or do you think that most people are going to hold back and they're not going to want to invest in this because they don't see it as a long-term thing? Or that perhaps commercially produced food is too strong a lobby to allow, you know, something like that to take place? Yeah, well, there's always the politics of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and definitely commercially produced food uh, lobbying was instrumental in dismantling the Victory Gardens movement after the war. So uh, we shouldn't discount the ability of 
big, you know, big grocery to influence uh, influence our lives in very profound ways. Um, but one thing that is interesting about the movement right now is the demand for local food is always outstripping the supply. Mm-hmm. So right now you have a very good economic system where local food is is in demand, and so the prices can be uh, sustainable um, on that level. And so you will find savvy business investors uh, taking a look at it just from a purely economic model and saying, well, if there's scarcity and the demand is always stronger than the supply, I want to be in that business. And food is a, is a very good business to be in because it's something that we need to, con- it, it's something you can't get away from. You cannot not participate in the food system <laughs> That's right. um, for, very, for very long anyways. So, uh, you know, places again like Detroit where you have financial, uh, you know, you've got a very, very wealthy Detroit financial uh, giant who is looking at agriculture simply because he thinks that this is where the money is in urban agriculture and that land is cheap within the city of Detroit and the demand is strong in that larger area for for food. So uh, you are getting some, some fairly major players taking a look at it. And, I, you know, I don't know about your grocery store, but even just the demand for local food has changed a little bit of the retail landscape in my supermarket where they have, you know, big signs saying this is local, whether it's truly local or not. But, um, you know, if if big grocery stores are paying attention to this local trend, um, absolutely. And so places like Vancouver, there are some uh, significant investors that are looking at creating these alternative food hubs. Um, And you also have people going into farming just as a business. So 20-year-olds looking at urban farming as a way to make a sustainable living. They want to be involved in agriculture, but they want to live in cities. Mm -hmm. And the model of uh, urban farming, you know, people are working it out so that it actually does create income that you can live off of so it's economically uh, sustainable and we can talk about spin farming and all sorts of other models that right now are kind of catching fire. Well, <clears throat> that brings me to um, vertical farming, because a few years ago, I ran across an article about that, and I had Dixon de Pommier come on to talk about mm-hmm. vertical farming, along with somebody who's at Gotham Greens, which is a big hydroponic um, rooftop farm. Right. And Dixon is actually coming back in a couple of weeks to talk about what's happened since then. But um, <clears throat> do you think that his model of vertical farming, which, uh, you know, is arguably sort of um, sci-fi, you know, space age <laughs> yeah, kind of... exactly. <clears throat> but do you... I mean, it seemed... It made so much sense to me at the time, and it still does. Um, yeah. Do you think I that think it we... is eventually going to take off? I, it seems to be, you know, s- slowed down by the proliferation of rooftop farms, and people are, certainly people should exploit that space. But I think these vertical farming concepts are great. Well, you know, agriculture is such a land-intensive type of activity um, that if you can take this sort of, uh, you know, huge acreage that you need to support a family of four and and layer it, you know, into a vertical farm or or a city, um, you know, growing up rather than out is is always very smart. Um, I agree with you. It's a bit sci-fi at the moment, um, and I don't think they've worked out the economics of building new buildings that grow lettuce and uh, fish and all these other things. But what is happening in Chicago, which is quite interesting, is there's already a vertical farm there. 
there. It's uh, four stories. It's not 40 stories. It's not a new build, um, but they're repurposing unused food manufacturing space in the stockyards area um, to to create a vertical farm. So they already have the, the tilapia in the basement, you know, into the fish loop, the mm-hmm. fish and the plant loop sort of circulating the water around, providing nutrients to the plants and cleaning the water for the fish um, and using, you know, compost from the uh, brewery and some of the other growing operations in the vertical farm to run a biodigester to heat the building for for the, um, the greenhouses. So I think we're just at the cusp, and I'd be interested to hear what he has to say because he proposed some very expensive and very ambitious designs um, <laughs> for food, and he was somewhat criticized for that. But sometimes you need those uh, people to... Push, you know, push our thoughts into the future and the, open the possibilities up. Um, I think probably that we'll find it's it's a mid ground thing. I don't I don't see a sustainable model of building a brand new building to grow food when we have so much unused building space mm-hmm. uh, lying around. So so I'd be interesting to hear what he has to say about that. <laughs> Well, that'll be coming up in a few weeks. I'll let you know when his, uh, when his segment is. Um, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. Jennifer, you've been a great guest. I really enjoyed this conversation. We didn't get to talk about London and growing all the food for the Olympics. That'll be another <laughs> chat. Okay. Yeah, we'll do that sometime in the summer. But, um, you know, let people know where you have a website, if there are readings or anything you want to, you know, talk about further or where people can get more information about your book. Why don't you... Uh... Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, I blog about my, my research that I did for my book, but also... Now that I'm coming across newer stuff at my blog at www.foodgirl.ca. And the book is available in bookstores pretty much everywhere from smaller independents to the chains and online booksellers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just really encourage people to send me resources. I'm trying to build a really good resource uh, section of my website. And, um, you know, so if you have a great community garden that you're involved with or a CSA, a community-supported agriculture program, or you just have a great idea for how we can move this new food revolution forward, uh, pop me a a line on my website. I'd be happy to post it. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, folks, we'll see you next week. I'm not sure who's going to be on. It'll either be Jason Hirsch uh, from the Associated Press, or it will be a special um, program about the blowing up ban on feral pigs in Michigan, which I know sounds weird, but it actually speaks right to our civil liberties. So um, stay tuned. This has been another fabulous episode of Straight No Chaser. Um, Many thanks to my sponsors at Whole Foods, and uh, we'll be seeing you next week. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.